Voice of Fintech. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we are at Paris Fintech Forum and uh, we're talking to Clara Durodier, who is an expert on AI, who runs the Cognitive Finance Consultancy in London and uh, participated in the panel on AI for Wealth Management. And Clara also wrote a great book called Decoding AI in, the fi in Financial Services last year. I just wanted to know what is the key message coming out of that book? What should we know? What's different that uh, everybody's talking about, whether that's AI, general intelligence, and uh, machine learning? What, what does that all mean for financial services? So, first of all, thank you very much for having me today. It's a pleasure to reconnect. Secondly, I just wanted to clarify the, the topic of what AI means. Uh, there are many definitions. AI experts, they can't agree on one definition. But I'd like to share with your audience today what AI means in business, in financial services. It's all about personalization of services at scale. Right. That's what we can do with this tool. AI in our industry is a strategic tool for business growth and profitability when deployed correctly. So the other point I want to clarify is uh, that AI is an umbrella term. And in my book, I go to great length to explain how different concepts like machine learning, natural language processing, computer vision, actually are subsets of this big umbrella called AI. So I think the, the message regarding my book, the first message I'd like to, to share was that the need to understand what AI means. What is this thing everybody talks about? So as long as we clarify the definition for our industry in financial services, then we will be able to proceed from, from a common denominator and understanding of what this is. Secondly, it's the, the second message which comes out from my, my book is that decision makers need to know what questions to ask before they procure this technology, before they deploy it. So in my book, I spend, I devote extensive time to, to list questions for board of directors and decision makers to ask. So um, anything from uh, data strategy all the way through to AI research and strategic decisions surrounding, um, uh, yeah, a business view across five to ten year horizon. And what does that mean in particular for the wealth management? You kind of alluded to it in terms of personalization of the services and things like that. What I like to hear is a reaction to some of the skeptics who say, look, uh, wealth management, most often we talk about robo-advisors, big wealth managers, they're saying, well, we are not worried about that. That's a commodity. It's a tool. And uh, we have fantastic uh, client advisors and relationship managers who focus on the up upper segment of the market. So what can AI do in that kind of segment, high net worth, ultra high net worth? Um, I would like to, first of all, clarify that um, AI in wealth management is, again, is a, a tool to deliver this function in a more efficient way and to make advisors work more, well, easier and more profitable. So, um, for instance, there, there are not many, many AI companies which actually understood this message correctly. And there is one I came across and actually stood out in my research as possibly in my research, the only AI company which actually understands the wealth management space 
They're a Canadian company. They're called a Responsive AI, and they they look at at many options and nuances of how the function, uh, how this business model operates, and how they actually deliver value for wealth management. And one of them is real time context for client uh, service and decision making. And it's really important to for an advisor uh, advisor's performance to be able to have this kind of this real time context. For instance, um, it's also valuable to have the next best decisions listed for an advisor. So which are scenarios put forward to an advisor and then the advisor chooses what would be the, the optimal solution. So I think to have advisors in wealth management with this kind of real-time view of how context and circumstances of a client change, um, I think is very powerful and is very profitable as well. All right, understood, great. And uh, I also understood that uh, the proceeds from your book go to charity. So could you tell us a little bit about that? How does that work? How does that work in book publishing business? Well, in the traditional book publishing business, it doesn't work. But I decided to make my own rules. So in order to have the flexibility of of deriving the larger share of proceeds from selling this book and uh, have the discretion to return this proceeds to charitable causes. So the proceeds from my book, so all the money I make as an author from publishing the book, go towards two charitable causes. One is to plant one tree for every copy sold. I mean, don't forget that this is a printed version only Mm -hmm. book. And the second charitable cause is to help students uh, in financial distress. There are many, very bright, many bright kids who get into top universities like Oxford and they don't have the means to sustain themselves properly during the three, four year college degree. So my book, for instance, pays for uh, not only planting one tree, but also covering the cost for one meal, uh, for three meals a day for one student. Wow, great. Well, thank you very much, Clara, and good luck going forward. Thank you very much indeed for having me. Welcome to Voice of Fintech. Thank you. Now we're joined by Ian, Ian O'Sullivan, who is from MasterCard, and we'll talk about their startup program and also what MasterCard does for female entrepreneurs and where you can find them and get involved and get in touch with them. So welcome, Ian. Thanks, Rudy. I'm impressed that you have a dedicated startup program. I must say I didn't know about it until until now, so I, I guess my bad. <laughs> so can you explain to other people as well, what is that program? What are you focusing on? How do you help the startups so that you provide them with resources and connectivity and knowledge, I guess, so they can take off the ground? Of course. The StartPath program is MasterCard's formal startup and corporate engagement program. It was set up about six years ago. And the primary objective of the program is for, for us to scour the globe to find later stage startups that we can bring into MasterCard or that we can introduce to customers with the primary objective of getting product to market in partnership rather than choosing to build in-house. So we've worked with probably 210 companies over the past six years, some that you'll probably know like Revolut or Airwallix from from Australia. They've collectively raised as a group 1.5 billion in investment funding and they're drawn from quite a broad category of interests. 30% probably fall in the fintech category, but beyond that, we're interested in companies that can help our customers, be they an issuing bank, be they an acquirer, be they a merchant, 
as I said, get product to market to delight their customers. The startups that we work with benefit in three ways specifically. So what we offer them is scale. We look for companies that, as I said, we would describe as being later stage. So typically they've raised some institutional funding, typically three to $5 million. They have a reasonably well built out team of 10 to 25 people. There's a high degree of innovation in the solution that they've built and they're solving problems that exist globally. And I think probably most importantly, they have a product that's live in market. They are companies that we believe are, are ready for scale and we can help them do that. We help them primarily by offering them access to subject matter expertise within MasterCard. Sometimes we can offer them access to, to tech or data, but I think probably most importantly is we can offer them a platform to meet our customers that have expressed an appetite to learn about the type of capabilities that they're bringing to market. And within that, you have a particular theme that uh, was discussed also with your vice chair today. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yep, so MasterCard generally is very committed to supporting female entrepreneurship. In support of that objective, you know, we very deliberately look for female-founded and female-led companies. I'm proud to say that 40% of our most recent intake had uh, of companies had females in positions of leadership. And we do that not just because it's the right thing to do, but because there's a whole host of studies out there that would suggest it's also the smart thing to do. And we have some incredibly strong female-founded companies like, like Goodworld and, and Digisec and Hummingbird and Nico, companies that you'd have seen join me in the panel discussion today. Great. And where do people find you? What kind of people would you be the most interested in, uh, in partnering up with? It's very easy to find us. You'll, we have a dedicated website, startpath.com. There's an application form on the site for anybody that feels that they kind of fit the criteria of, of later stage, ready for scale. We're very, very keen to hear from. We take in three to four classes of companies per year. So we, we try and work with between 30 and 40 startups each year. Now they're drawn from probably 1500 applications. So we, we do have and are delighted to have a very healthy pool of applications, but we go through a phased process of, of getting to, to the 10 per quarter that we typically look to work with. So uh, startpath.com, if you feel you have uh, an interesting proposition for MasterCard or for MasterCard's uh, customers, we'd be really keen to hear from you. Great. Well, thank you very much and good luck to you again. Thank you very much, Rudy. Appreciate yes. it. So now we're joined by Suzanne Chisti that is a founder of Fintech Circle, and we'll find out more about what Fintech Circle can do for you. Also, Suzanne chaired many of the panels today, so we'll find out some of the key takeaways from those panels. And lastly, we also learn more about the events that Fintech Circle puts together, whether that's in the UK or around the world. So welcome, Suzanne. Thanks so much, Udi, for having me. Great to have an opportunity to talk to you because you're a well-known and well-respected person in the fintech world. So finally, we got the chance to talk. And uh, first thing, I just want to explain to people, what does fintech circle really mean? So fintech circle is a global platform of 130,000 people consisting of fintech entrepreneurs, fintech investors, lots of entrepreneurs in large banks, international service institutions, also regulators and service providers, you know, for the financial services base. 
And we do a few things. Number one, we invest in fintech startups. So we run our own angel network, the only one in Europe, which only invests in fintech companies. Right. And we do this out of London. We've got about 70 investors. And our goal is to find the best fintech companies with the biggest growth potential long term. What are the ticket sizes? The ticket size normally ranges between, uh, I mean, for the companies, I would say about half a million is our, our goal. And we normally, as a personal investor, as a private and angel investor, you know, people invest up to a hundred thousand pounds, and uh, and the goal is to build a portfolio, you know, of different fintech companies sure. to to invest in. And what we also do is education. So we focus on writing books on fintech topics. So we already wrote three books. One is on it's called the fintech book. It was the first book on fintech globally, in fact, uh, published by Wiley which became a global bestseller. It's now available in 10 languages across 107 countries. And then we launched a book on wealth tech, uh, which is about the future of private banking and the future about asset management, which of course is a big topic in Switzerland as well. Sure. No, so, I have the book to be fully transparent. Oh, wonderful. I hope you like it. Yes. So it's really about, you know, how, how asset management is changing. And I, I worked for Morgan Stanley Asset Management for seven years. You know, that's an area I, I, I feel very passionate about. And we also wrote one book about insure tech, which is about the future of insurance. And, uh, and we just launched our fourth book, which is about payment technology. It's called the Pay Tech Book. So this is our second area of fintech service education. We also run courses, you know, fintech masterclasses for senior management, top management in the financial services sector. The third area of what we do is focused on consulting, on advisory work for banks to help them understand either which fintech companies to work with or to help them set up an internal accelerator program or an internal innovation competition and how to create a proper governance framework which supports innovation and which supports KPIs for innovation, you know, to really make innovation work at corporate level. And the last but not least, we believe that from a geopolitical point of view that America won't be the leading driving force as it has been over the last, uh, I guess, 100, 200 years, but it will move to Asia in terms of tech innovation and tech-driven new business models. And therefore, what we have started to do is we have launched a FinTech Bridge conference, which brings together, you know, leaders of the Chinese FinTech ecosystem, Chinese banks in Europe, and Chinese investors together with European entrepreneurs, European investors, so that we can learn how to better work closer with Chinese partners and how for some European and UK FinTech companies, how they can also tap into the investor pool, which is very deep and very varied in China, if you want to get an access and source investment from China's hands. So it's about signing deals, trade deals, and finding investment partners. Okay, great. So you had a long day today at Paris Fintech Forum, chairing many of the panels. What were the key insights or key takeaways that you could share? So I was chairing a track which was called Globalization and Cooperation, also Cooptition, which focused on how fintech startups, how fintech scale-ups can work with large financial institutions. 
and vice versa. You know, how can a large bank choose and work wisely with fintech, smaller fintech companies? And, uh, and we try to identify what are the best practices, how to make this work, because so far, not many people have managed to make it work. You know, not many companies have managed to work successfully with smaller fintech companies because there's always a danger that either you acquire them, but then you destroy their innovation spirit or you hire them for a POC and then it doesn't go anywhere because organizational governance and the red tape almost stops it. So we've got lots of cases where it didn't work out, but we identified a couple of best practice recommendations and I'm happy to share that uh, with you. The first one was about having a sponsor and really senior executive buy-in from your corporate partner. Because if you have got, if as a fintech company, if you've got a sponsor, an executive buy-in, uh, you have got somebody inside who will help you close this deal, you know, and help yeah. you maintain the relationship. So that's, absolutely. that's absolutely important. Second uh, recommendation is to for corporates to give startups a quick no if they feel it doesn't go anywhere. So it's better to tell the startups no early on than wasting the time yeah, of, of founders, you know, because founders don't have the luxury of waiting because otherwise they need to move to another opportunity. So this is, you know, really the um, being able to collaborate and work together, which also means being able to have a, a, a kind of a focus, you know, a very laser-focused approach and value proposition. So what is the value that the fintech company brings to the corporate client and how can this be defined and articulated in detail so that if you do a proof of concept, for example, you know exactly what should come out in terms of success criteria for the POC to turn into a large-scale contract. Right. So this alignment of interest and alignment of expectations is, is critical. And the other um, recommendation which we talked about was an alignment of timelines. For fintech companies, they need to know, will it be a six-month sales cycle? Will it be a year sales cycle? Are there any steering committees, governance, forums, which have to approve this deal in order to manage their own expectations? So ideally, if comp companies can share that and help fintech companies in this way, then this also would be much appreciated you know, from the fintech sector and also helps the partnership on both ends. So I guess these were the key, the key um, recommendations from our panel today at the Paris Fintech Forum. And another final tip was for startups, don't do any free POCs. Because if you do free POCs, it probably means that the bank or the, the uh, you know insurance company doesn't value you enough and it's much harder to get a paid contract later on. But you really should filter you know, your potential partners out by only doing paid proof of concept, so paid proof of value, we call them now as well, because it's really about proving the value, you know, to the organization. And so where do people find out more about Fintech Circle? The easiest way, of course, is our website, fintechcircle.com. You know, Fintech Circle has got 130,000 people in our global ecosystem who can follow us on LinkedIn and who can follow us on Twitter. So we are on all social media. We also have Instagram accounts. This literally just Fintech Circle. But equally, we organize lots of events and conferences to meet us and to meet the whole ecosystem in person that's really important although we are 
in a tech-driven sector, obviously, but business is still done between people. And networking is really important in fintech to get to grow uh, businesses and grow startups. Great. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're joined by Emmeline, who is running Flourish Ventures in the US. And we're going to talk about what does Flourish Ventures do for the founders. Also, some of her views on scalability and growth. That was one of the topics on the panel today. And then how can Flourish Ventures connect with you? So welcome, Emmeline. Hi, thanks for having me. How are you today? Great, thanks. Yeah. So what does Flourish Ventures do? What is your mission or what's your um, investment thesis? Yeah, so we are a $500 million global fintech fund, and we're focused on technology investments that advance financial health and economic resilience. So technologies that in some way help folks earn more income, save better, uh, manage expenses, access credit cheaply uh, on the direct-to-consumer side and on the direct-to-business-to-business on the direct business to business side, the indirect side of the house, infrastructure that helps unlock innovation and financial services that ultimately benefit the end consumer. And you're based in California, right? I am based in California, that's correct. Okay, and you said 500 million, so how long have you been doing this as a fund? So I've been in venture since January 1st of 2000. So I've been investing uh, for a very long time across all facets of technology. Uh, and before that, I was an investment banker at Morgan Stanley in technology in the 90s, um, again in the U.S. I switched over to run this fund and actively focus specifically on fintech about three years ago. We have, our fund itself has been around for a while. We actually spun it out of Pierre Midiar Network last March. We have about 45 portfolio companies globally and 18 folks on our team um, that all help to invest and deploy this capital across the world. Okay. And of course, you know, you do it for the, for the profit, let's be honest, right? This is not a government initiative. That is correct. So, In fact, even, even against our impact mandate, we're very commercial. Exactly. Yes. You know, both of these things have to work together. Absolutely. And uh, so what's your message to the founders when you see the proposals? What is the key thing that um, has to be there so they, you know, they, they can pass the mustard and you can invest in them? Yeah, well, maybe before giving some advice quickly, just for some context, we've made a lot of global bets. Some of the bets are in challenger banks. We're right. in seven globally in the U.S. Chime and Aspiration. We're in SME lending. We're in InsureTech, RegTech. And I think what we've seen is among, as you start making bets globally, you start to see the importance of having to scale and scale quickly and being very thoughtful against which how you scale. So in the U.S., it's a little bit easier. It's a big, big market. When you start thinking about Europe in particular, the need to go beyond European markets and think about when you play in markets like the U.S. and others are pretty critical to massing that level of scale. And it's not without challenge. There's still challenges we recognize. There's regulatory challenges, there's um, cultural challenges, business model differences, but even so, it's important to persevere. It's really, and you see that in some of the companies here in the UK, for example, the Revolut, um, or even in 26, if you look at challenger banks as an example, the importance of scaling quickly and investing in the regulatory know-how to be able to replicate that is critical in amassing value and ultimately really yields the dollars that you want to unlock from investors globally. Right, and, you know, but you're operating in the US, so you have a large domestic market in Europe. We don't have 300 million in one country, right? Correct. So I guess that leads to the message that I would say to people go international. 
if you're European. Absolutely. I mean, and again, we're seeing that. They're going among European markets. They're expanding very quickly, and then they're beginning to expand, in particular in the U.S. This seems to be the natural extension um, in other parts of Latin America. I do think having a global view and building your business with that global expectation was critical. That was the biggest takeaway from today's session. We were with some incredible entrepreneurs, all of whom came with a very global perspective and built their company and built the regulatory know-how to be able to move quickly against that mandate. Okay. And lastly, I just want to know where do people find you, Flourish Ventures, and what kind of people would be the most relevant for you to connect with? We're looking for mission-based entrepreneurs that want to take commercial technology innovation around fintech and really help benefit um, the end consumer and help them build, live a more financially resilient life. And so against the number of sectors I mentioned earlier, we're looking for technology innovators. Uh, early stage, we do seed and A. And so if you're looking for funding or even just advice, quite frankly. Um, so we're looking for mission-based entrepreneurs. Mission-based entrepreneurs uh, that are trying to focus on advancing financial health and economic resilience, focus on the sectors that I described earlier. We, we invest in early stage seed and A. So to the extent that that's an area that you're building a company against, we would love to hear from you. And we're at flourishventures.com. My name is Evelyn Shaw, again, one of the managing partners, and would love to hear from you. I'm happy to help in any way I can. Thank you very much, Emily, and good luck to Flourish Ventures. Thank you.